like that, man. Well, welcome, everyone, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. We're broadcasting live in sunny Los Angeles, and we are the Sports Psych MDs. And this is the Sports Psych MDs podcast. Yes. Um, Armin and I, well, this is my co-host here, Dr. Yes. Armin Hose, the That's host. Right. That's right. Is and Swiss the Moses, Captain Hose. <laughs> Captain? Yes. And this is Dr. Tori Trogio. Hey, how you guys doing? And we're the Sports Psych MDs. We're excited to be here. We're going to bring you a podcast that has everything to do with mental illness and everything to do with sports. That's right. And uh, everything in between. Yes, absolutely. That's right. Listen, we're here to start a conversation. Ooh, it's a tough conversation. Yeah, it's going to be difficult at times, but I promise in the end, it'll all be worth it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. We'll trust you. But there is a lot of misconceptions, misunderstandings. Yes. Just plain ignorance about mental illness. And what illness. about stigma? Oh, the stigma's huge. Yeah. And inside the arena of sports, that macho, masculine, show no weakness. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know we gotta we gotta we gotta destroy the stigma. It's an yeah. ugly word. First off, it is. It is. Yeah. And so, listen, we um, we trained together at UCLA in their joint VA program, um, and we uh, that was about four. We met four years ago. About four years ago. That's right. About four Did years. A lot of the nightlife here in Los Angeles. Great time. Great times. But listen, so psychiatry is our passion, but so is sports, and so we decided what better way to bond a friendship than around two things you're really passionate yeah, about. and make a podcast about it. And then make a podcast about it because, look, we realized after talking about this stuff, just kind of having just conversations, you know, sitting around, you know, over a beer or whatever, just like, look, you know, what, what's up with this? What's up with that? Yeah, like, there's what's only, up with this athlete? What's up only, with that athlete? Yeah, there's only so many times we can talk about Tom Brady and LeBron James, dude. <laughs> right. Come on. Right. So we had to evolve it a little bit. That's right. And here we are because we realized that there were a lot of very important topics that needed to be fleshed out, you know, just needed to be talked about. And we felt like we're learning about all this shit, you know, why not bring it to the world? Why not bring it to the, you know, to the community around us to educate folks and, and, you know, I don't know, listen to people and learn and just have a, a conversation in which in the end, hopefully we all feel better about the fact that mental illness is, is, is a thing. And, but it's something that, uh, you know, can get better and something that affects um, each and every effect, one of affects us. Affects all of us, and something that you you can have and still be great. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. So Armin and I, huge sports fans. I'll say it again. I'll say it a thousand times. Um, and we're psychiatrists. So buckle your seatbelts for the Sports Psych MD podcast. So now, Tori, let's let our viewers and listeners know how is it? How are we tying sports in particular into all this and saying okay? So here's psychiatry, and there's sports, and you know how how we how yeah. exactly are we putting yeah. the two together. So sports psychology, it's been around for ages, over a hundred years. Yes, um, everyone knows that that's pivotal to a lot of performances. Some people would say nowadays that a lot of coaches have to be kind of savvy with, with with regards to sports psychology. Sports psychology is all about being in the moment, getting in that flow, yeah. eliminating distractions when you're on the court or when you're on the baseball field. And sports psychiatry is just an extension of that. That's right. So we, we've been around maybe for only about 30 years, started with the International Society of Sports Psychiatry. What our goals as sports psychiatrists are to mm-hmm. focus in on the athletes and the specific challenges they face right. to optimize the health of these athletes. That's right. Ethically improve athletic performance. And okay. if there are actual psychiatric symptoms or disorders, we want to manage these and treat these. Got it. I think both Armin and I 
along with that, also want to help with not only just diagnosable mental illness, but also the spectrum of mental health. We're trying to, along with sports psychologists, improve someone's overall health because we want to improve their overall functioning and their overall well-being. That's right. We believe that mental health is just as integral to someone's overall health as physical health is. That's right. Um, so we're not only going to looking at treating pathologies and treating disorders, but we want to optimize overall functioning. And it's time that mental health care has a seat at the table. <laughs> that's right. Let's do it. No, absolutely, man. Uh, that's, that's, that's great. Yeah, it's a great way of bringing this all together and, and bringing us to this point where we are now and why we're doing this podcast. You know, there have been some, I would say, prolific stories that have dropped yes. on the scene uh, in like the last year, I'd say, as it relates to big time sports figures and mental health. I think, you know... Are you talking part, about one of UCLA's own? Yeah, actually I am. We're, yeah. You want to jump the into guy, that? Yeah, well, we all know Kevin Love. Certainly anyone from LA knows Kevin Love and any, any uh, basketball NBA fan out there knows Kevin Love. Member of the Cleveland Cavaliers, six foot ten power forward who attended UCLA, did great things there for that program and, and was then drafted by the Minnesota Timberwolves. And then, um, it's sort of as he was just entering his prime, he was kind of like putting up numbers like twenty six and thirteen, <laughs> big numbers, man. He got um, he finally got an, he got a teammate. Up, he got well, some he got help. picked up by by Cleveland yep. Cavaliers when LeBron James. He got picked up by LeBron James. That's right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, so it was the second big three, of course, of LeBron's career, and uh, it was him, Kyrie Irving. And Kevin Love, and uh, they ended up bringing Cleveland championship the first time in you know, forty plus years that the city has won a championship. Shout out to Drew Carey for sure, man. So uh, Kevin Love came out, uh, man, and and it, it was kind of something that shook up the the sports world a bit because uh, he was probably the biggest sports figure at that time to uh, make a, a public statement about battle with, with um, a mental health challenge. And uh, it was um, a couple years back, it was a game that his team, the Cleveland Cavaliers, were playing in which he had had to leave and go to the locker room unexpectedly. Just sort of, mm -hmm. it just kind of happened very suddenly in the middle of the game. Um, and I think the sports broadcasters were a little surprised because, you know, they had, they had done some, um, they, they, they reviewed the, the film and they didn't see where there was any sort of physical injury uh, that happened on the floor, so there was some questions, and you know, then finally it was announced that he had been, you know, taken to the hospital, and um, so he did a very courageous thing, uh, and he announced to the sports world that, you know, he struggles with anxiety, and that he specifically left the game. panic attacks. He left that game because of a panic attack. Yeah, I, I have. He wrote this beautiful article in the Players Tribune back in March 2017. I have it up right now, and this is what he said when he was in the locker room. He said. I was running from room to room. My, my heart would not stop racing. It was like my body was trying to say to me, you're going to die. I ended up on the floor in the training room, lying on my back, trying to get enough air to breathe. Wow. And that's what prompted them to take him to the emergency department. And they didn't find anything medically wrong and found out he was struggling with panic attacks. And he said here that it was weeks after that where he was kind of questioning why he wasn't open about this with his teammates, with others. And it sounds like what he wrote about is the Cavs actually helped him find a therapist. Okay. And when he kind of got to the therapist's room, he was like, 
like what are my problems what do, what do i have to worry about uh-huh. i've i've i have everything i've ever wanted in my life yeah like, no it's true why do i have to like see a therapist i never thought this was something for me so he kind of was facing that stigma head on and having doubts right. with regards to this. Right. And he actually, I mean, he wrote it very eloquently in this piece, and he talked about how through therapy it was him finding out that his grandmother had passed away several years before then, and he found out that he never really processed that death. And that was being essentially being manifested as panic attacks and anxiety. And it was through therapy that he was able to kind of, it sounds like, um, overcome this anxiety. Right. Yeah. So look up that article if you have a chance. It was great. And it kind of epitomizes like what we're trying to do with this podcast. Absolutely, it does. Yeah, no, um, for sure. So, no, and, and what it did, and, and it, was a, it was a huge step forward because, again, he actually wrote an article about it. So it was like, you know, right there. All in his words, he wasn't, attacking yeah, it wasn't, that stigma. It wasn't a situation where some reporter had just like a microphone in his face and kind of got him, you know, to say something and you know, awkwardly, it was, you know, he, it was an in- intentional move, you know, and something he wanted to share with the world. And that ultimately inspired others to come forward. Yeah. And, you know, DeMar DeRozan. Yeah. Um, our, I think one of our main goals on this podcast is we want to have athletes in here, coaches in here, people involved in sports in here to talk about mental illness, to talk about their, maybe their own personal struggles. For sure. Because the more people open up about it, the more the stigma is going to go down, the more that children are going to see that it's okay to struggle with these things because you know what there's help if you seek help you can overcome this and you can kind of optimize your ability to um, be who you want to be yeah and you know the thing I I really love the most about the stories that are coming out you know the Caleb story the DeMar DeRozan story is that it shows that mental illness is not something that you know is going to completely disable or cripple you it's something that you can not only just kind of live with, but you can also be great with. I mean, Kevin Love's an all-star. Um, DeMar DeRozan, also an all-star. They're great players who have mental health oh, challenges. Oh, speaking of great players, listen to this. Deion Sanders just came out with an article. Uh, yeah. We're recording this now yeah, He's one of the greatest football players of all time. So he right talked there. about how he actually struggled with depression had a suicide attempt. Wow. And I had no idea. So he said, quote-unquote, rock bottom for me was having hundreds of suits and not covering the pain. Rock bottom for me was having hundreds of pairs of shoes, but couldn't take a step in the right direction. Rock bottom for me was having 14,000 square foot house, but never feeling at home. Wow. He went on, rock bottom for me was laying between two or three women at a time, but you get up unsatisfied. Wow. (laughs) Laying right (laughs) beside the person who said they love you, but she didn't even know my middle name. So this exemplifies that fame, money, fortune, everything in the world isn't going to make you immune to mental illness and actually can put you at an increased risk for certain things, of feeling alienated, like it sounds like Deion Sanders is feeling here. He said, quote unquote, further, I was crying out to people, but they couldn't hear you because they saw Prime, referring to... That's right. Primetime, Deion Sanders. That that's powerful, man. That that's really powerful because if you think about it, what what he's almost what he's almost saying is that the money and the fame and fortune, it almost was was like it was a, a distraction for people, blinding them to what his reality really is. 100%. So it was almost like having all the fame, having all the money, it was detrimental to his health. Because oh. people couldn't recognize what he was really going through. And I get it. 
I get it. I mean, can you imagine somebody living in a mansion, you know, with like, you know, five, however many cars and, you know, I think with, he had like, as he cars. said, with, you know, two and three women and yeah. And it's like, they, there's like, it's going to be really hard for people. I to mean, understand. there's there, this thing came out and a lot of people are making fun of him. It's like, oh, that was your rock bottom having threesomes and foursomes. No, I mean, for sure. Like, there, I mean, there's still, yeah, this, I mean, and then there's and this, part, part of me is like, oh, that must be nice. But there's still this giant misconception out yeah, there. Yeah, the, exactly. That, that's the thing. Like it, if you're famous and you're rich and you're on these billboards and you're on the TV right. screen that, what do you have to complain about? Like your life, everyone wants that life. I mean, they face the same exact shit we face, plus more. And depression, they, it, 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 knows, it, no no, it knows nothing about income. Yeah. It knows nothing about property and resources. It's a disease. So I didn't know that he actually attempted suicide in 97. He says here that he drove his car off a cliff and yeah. fell 40 feet, but survived. Right. So he could have died. Yeah. That, that would, we, if that happened in 97, man, that would have been in his, in his literally and in his everyone, prime. I mean, this is literally shocking to me to read. And, and, yeah. That would, oh, man. So these are just two, three examples of athletes that were struggling in the past or struggling currently, and I'm, we're so glad that every, like people are starting to open up about this because it's alive and real, and we're, that's why we're here. We want to keep this going, you know, continue this conversation. Man. Actually, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, let's, let's think about that for a second. 1997. Okay, so that's when was he... time, baby. When was he on the... He was on the, uh, the Cowboys... And the 49ers, if I remember correctly. He's on the Falcons to start off. But his the, Fal- the Falcons early on, but in terms of the teams that he won Super, Super Bowls, Bowls with. yeah, and then he got up to the good teams. And and that was around it was in the nineties. It was probably around that time. And and then ninety seven. So ninety seven would have been kind of on actually the tail end of that phase. And you know, that's that's gonna be a big part of, of what I want to talk about today with our listeners, the adjustment disorder and and its impact. In athletes, or or it's um, you know how it how it plays out in athletes because they go through some transitions in terms of highs and lows that I think he was also playing for the Cincinnati Reds in '97. Sorry, I just had to look that up. So he was a two sport athlete. He was still he's probably the biggest name in sports at that time. Oh yeah, he was absolutely the biggest name in sports at that time. Yeah, yeah. Trying to think who like Steve Young, Jerry Rice. Now Jerry Rice was already past his. Troy Aikman. Uh, Jerry Smith. Rice's fame was in the '80s. Um, you had like the Dallas Cowboys, you know, and their whole thing. Emmitt Smith, but Dion was it was prime. It was prime time. Yeah. Any anywhere right. he went, he changed. He was a game. So he's changer. at the pinnacle of not only sports but of probably pop culture at that time. Oh yeah, because he. And yep, he was doing the hip hop videos. That's just there's no better example than that right there. Can you so. imagine top of the world? And there's other there's so many guys. It's lonely talk about. at the top. You know? So many guys we're going to talk about just like this, that, you know, in their relative sports profession, they were at the top and man, certain forms of mental illness or some form of mental health challenge derailed their careers. Yep. So here, here's what we're getting into the rest of this podcast. What makes an athlete unique? Mental illness and substance use in sports versus the general population, performance enhancing drugs and sports and the agencies that regulate the drug use. What? Concussion and CTE, everyone's heard about CTE, injury, retirement, end of career, adjustments, and then what's on the horizon? So let's go ahead and jump uh, into it. Armin, what makes an athlete unique? Yeah, I mean, we already touched on a lot of this. We have. We've talked about it, but, you know, we can just reiterate a few points. Athletes are, uh, man, well, when I was a kid, I thought athletes, at least professional athletes and college athletes to to some degree, we're like superheroes. Oh, all my idols yeah. were athletes. Yeah. 
Michael Jordan for me when I was a kid. Uh, he was yeah. up there. King Griffey Jr. for um, me. And I and I do remember the Muhammad Ali legacy, even though I wasn't alive, you know, when he was boxing at his at his peak. But you know, he was obviously an idol. Um, you know, Mike Tyson was actually big when I was a kid. You know, he was knocking people out. I oh. thought, oh my God, this guy's invincible. He's like Iron Man, you know. Um, that was his nickname, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, no, there was, uh, you know, and then of course you play video games. You know, you got like, I was a kid. I actually am old enough to know about Tecmo Bowl. Tecmo Bowl was a yeah, game that, before my yeah, time, Tecmo buddy. Bowl was huge, huge, huge. I like RBI baseball. Um, but you see these guys like Bo Jackson. I mean, he was or literally junior baseball invincible on this game. I mean, you know, like he just could not be stopped in this game. So like, I, you know, you, you look at these guys, and you feel like, wow, like these guys are superhuman. And, and from the standpoint of the athlete, from their perspective, I think to some extent, there comes a point in their lives and they may, they may start to believe that too. I mean, they have all these fans, you know, people that want to, to get to know them and people want to meet them and get their autograph in the community. You know, if they're, if they're, if they're destined to be a professional athlete, you bet your bottom dollar in some of these small towns, they're being treated like a celebrity from the time oh, they're yeah. teenagers. And that's, not, that's not necessarily a good thing. No, no. I mean, it's not because, you know, the, the reality is, if you look at the statistics, the life cycle of a professional athlete is relatively short, particularly compared to the general population. I mean, you know, in most professions, you know, you're thinking 30 plus years, you know, you're thinking about retiring 50s, 60s. In the sports world, that's 20s, 30s, you know, so you got to really figure, yeah. you know, think, start thinking early in life and about what, the next phase. What were some of those virtues we talked about, what sports provides us with as kids? Like you, you get humbled, you learn how to work hard and overcome certain weaknesses. Yeah. Some of these guys who are professional athletes, a lot of times were just so gifted at a young age that they could kind of get by without maybe necessarily doing as much work as others, or maybe they just isolated that hard work into their sport and it never really transitioned outside of the football field. So now they're retiring at 30, I think if you retire at 30, that's a hell of a career in the that's NFL. A, that's a great career. Um, what's the fallback plan? Right. So a lot of these guys have such a linear focus that it kind of can cripple them outside of that sport. But it can go either way. Sometimes they can take that hard work and focus and grind from the sport like Kobe Bryant, obsessed, and take it elsewhere. So then he retires and he wins an Oscar right now. Academy Award a year later. Yep. Wild. So uh, mental illness could pop up Irregardless of the sport, it can just kind of present itself in a manic episode when you're 20 years old, regardless of whether or not you were playing football, or it can be exacerbated. You could already have an anxiety disorder and then you play second base and you yep. get anxious every time a ball gets hit to you and you can't throw it because your arm's shaking. Yep. Um, or you might have your anxiety well controlled, no signs of mental illness, and all of a sudden it shows for the first time it's on the football field. Or you look on the flip side, maybe someone has anxiety and they run cross country and that soothes their anxiety. That's, That's right. a treatment for it. Totally right. healthy. So there's there's there can be a relationship, there can be no relationship. It's fascinating. No, it is. It, it, it's absolutely fascinating. And you know, some people. So this is kind of more of an uh, educational point, I guess. Some people are they they inherit. Uh, mental illness, you know, so uh, in their families, there's, you know, certain uh, genetic contributions that yep. that may make someone more more likely to, to have mental illness, mm-hmm. you know, when just the you know general stressors yeah. of life impacts that person, you know, they're, they're going to develop those symptoms. It's kind of like that three hit hypothesis. The first hit is the gene, like right. the schizophrenia gene that you get from your mm-hmm. mom or dad. And then the second hit would be 
you smoked pot at 17 and right. now you're psychotic. Yeah. And then the third hit would be you are now isolating. No one wants to be around you. So you don't learn how to function in the real world. And then you, you end up kind of decompensating and having worsening schizophrenia. That's right. So, and yeah, and, and that's probably the thing, but particularly among the, uh, the more severe forms of mental illness, that's the thing we see most often, you know, is, is there's going to be some, a family member, uh, that, you know, probably, you know, links, uh, to, to your patient that helps you understand why they have what they have. Um, but then there's a lot of forms of, of, of mental health symptoms and mental health conditions that are induced, you know, by stress. Yep. Even without much of a, a genetic inheritance, if any, uh, at all, you have situations like with trauma, major trauma forms of stressor, uh, having a near-death experience, yeah. you know, sadly to say, you know, a, a sexual assault mm-hmm. experience, you know, things like that, uh, particularly situations when you feel your life is in danger, they're going to generally, ha- it's going to leave a yeah, mark. Yeah, even kind of like impression. any, even micro traumas, if we're not taking account full-blown PTSD, even like yeah. like Kevin Love said, the, the death of his grandmother, That's he never right. really processed that. And that was kind of a one hit to him and that ended up him developing an anxiety disorder. That's right, yeah. And, and, and really, it's all about our own personal resilience. I mean... Mm-hmm. That's what makes the difference. You know, some people can tolerate high levels of, of stress and high levels of trauma without becoming sick, but, you know, some of us cannot. And, you know, we also inherit our resilience. Yeah. And, you know, it, it stands to reason that perhaps, you know, if, if you did have a more stressful life, you know, that you, you, would, you would develop symptoms of mental, Absolutely. Of mental no illness. One, no one's immune to mental illness, no. regardless of how resilient you are. Yeah. Um, and life is, is unfair, so you're always going to have different stressors that are going to mess with you. Yeah. Um, another huge risk factor with an athlete is risk for injury. How many professions do you have a risk of getting your head smacked off by an inside linebacker? Right. So anytime you're physically at risk, it's going to take its toll on your mental health as well. For sure. Um, yeah, because you because you look at it and like so many athletes have you know had their careers ruined by injury, you know, and so you always you always when you have, when you have an, a major injury like an ACL or something like that, that's probably the first thing that comes to mind is how am I going to recover? Yeah. And you have to worry about the future because you never know. And you know that, you know, your lifeline is your body. And, you know, if that goes, then, you know, there's no coming back. Yeah. Your lifeline is also your mental health as well. So, and that leads a lot of people, brings us into our next topic. It leads a lot of athletes to use performance enhancing drugs to try to gain that competitive edge so they can get that scholarship. Yep. They can get their family out uh, out of the slums. They can get that next fat contract or they can recover from an injury. So that leads to doping, steroid use, HGH, testosterone, EPO. That's what your boy Lance Armstrong used with the uh, one testicle. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, but listen, man. And and here's the thing. There's these performance-enhancing drugs you're talking about um, that are these kind of synthetic agents that that you know really do actually give that person competitive advantage. But then there's this other side, right, which is these street drugs, that aren't necessarily performance enhancing, but what they're doing is they're helping folks cope with pain or cope with the stress of their their careers, you know, their the competitive environment mm-hmm. of the sports world. And, you know, those things are problematic because you can become an addicted. Yep. You know? And these things are regulated in all levels of athletics once you start getting to college. The NCAA, um, USADA, WADA, World Anti-Doping Agency, 
they have strict guidelines, uh, banned substances, no marijuana, obviously, but they also ban things like stimulants, like Ritalin or Adderall. That's right. But as psychiatrists, like, oh, we need to be able to prescribe that. That's actually one of our most effective medications. Um, so what we have as psychiatrists, as mental health experts and physicians in the field are therapeutic use exemptions or TUEs. So we can assess an athlete and we can do a history, physical, family history, the whole jazz, and be like, all right, this person has diagnosable ADHD, and we can fill out a therapeutic use exemption and allow that athlete to take a stimulant like Ritalin or Adderall to treat their ADHD, to treat their inattention, their hyperactivity, their restlessness, their impulsivity, in order to get them at a baseline like someone without ADHD ADHD is at. So they can optimize their functioning, not only within the sport, but outside the sport. Many people probably hear this and say, well, that's performance enhancement. That's a right. performance-enhancing drug. No. What they don't realize is people who have are diagnosed with ADHD from professionals like psychiatrists, that's why we're important because you actually have to have the diagnosis. You, we're not just given, like, if someone doesn't have ADHD and they take Adderall, yeah, that's definitely a performance-enhancing drug. I'm not arguing with that. No. But for someone who has ADHD and struggles with inattention, can't pay attention, can't finish tasks, can't run the right route because they weren't paying attention when their, their QB was calling the play, taking that medication is going to get you at that baseline. We, we consider them performance enablers. That's right. You know, right. and then we got our girl, Simone Biles, the last all-around uh, Olympic gold medalist in gymnastics all-around at the That's last right. Olympics. She took a lot of flack on Twitter for using uh, methylphenidate or Ritalin. Um, she said, quote-unquote, or wrote, I have ADHD and I've taken medicine for it since I was a kid. Please know I believe in a clean sport, have always followed the rules, and will continue to do so, as fair play is critical to sport and is very important to me. She went on and wrote, having ADHD and te- taking medicine for it is nothing to be ashamed of and nothing I'm afraid to let people know. So this is another athlete going along with Kevin Love that's, that's kind of putting her neck on the line because she knows there's a stigma very against courageous. it. That's why she was getting a lot very of flack on Twitter. Yeah. The Russians yeah. leaked that news. They leaked her medical records. So she had to protect herself. And I'm sure there's tons of people that still believe that she was taking performance-enhancing drugs. But as a budding child psychiatrist and as a psychiatrist, we, we know, and Armin and I know, that these are medications that are going to help them get to a baseline that people are at who don't have ADHD. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. And, and you know, uh, speaking of, of, of young athletes, uh, I, was, I was stunned. You and I talked about this, this survey uh, that was done, a research study on substance use in the NCAA, mm. right? Big and time. That was, that was a huge... 17, yeah. or 23,000 athletes. This That's is back right. in 2017, so very recent, across three divisions of NCAA sports. And guess what we found out? Substance abuse levels with regards to marijuana, alcohol, very similar with regards to general population and athletics. So yeah. around 80% for alcohol and around 25 to 30% for marijuana use. That's right. And you would think, well, alcohol is definitely not a performance-enhancing drug. And marijuana, eh, maybe some people can argue, but marijuana is also banned in NCAA, so the fact that it's almost even with general use is concerning. Um, but people in athletics are using these, these drugs at the same rates, essentially. Right. And some things yeah. like... Chewing tobacco at higher rates. I mean, anyone who's played played baseball knows that. And you know, for those that that you know aren't completely familiar with the relationship between mental illness and addiction, I mean, you know, they're they're inherently linked. Um, you know, mental health challenges and and mental illness is what triggers addiction, and you know, the the behavior of addiction. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, addictive behavior triggers mental health symptoms. Absolutely, I mean, that's, you know, it's a, it's a bi-directional relationship. They go hand in hand, and we, it goes yeah. back to that kind of the mind and the brain, and we have this reward system in our brain that's called the limbic system, and it involves dopamine and different neurotransmitters. And in an addiction, that is kind of thirsty for additional reinforcement and <laughs> yeah, dopamine. And that, absolutely. That, that ties into so many different things that we we see within psychiatry. Like Armin said, so many different mental illnesses go hand in hand with addiction. Um, so we definitely consider that part of our realm and that's part of our jobs. So in, and we can name out, name off thousands of athletes. Well, I don't know if we can name out thousands, but there have been thousands of athletes who struggled with substance use and substance abuse. I mean, Ryan Leaf was one of them that comes to the top of my head. He was a second pick in the NFL draft. Back oh, yeah. Then. I remember Ryan Leaf. I, remember, I mean, I just moved to Indianapolis that year. Peyton Manning, Ryan Leaf. Which one are we going to take? They drafted right. Peyton Manning. Coincidentally, I moved from Knoxville, Tennessee, to West Lafayette, Indiana. So Peyton Manning followed me to Indiana, and I'm a huge Peyton Manning fan. He's the GOAT in my eyes. Anyways, oh my God. Ryan Leaf said, quote-unquote, I was told how great Running I was at something, dude. and I tended to believe it. I thought I was God. I was more important than you because I could do this thing where I played a silly sport that made me better human being in my eyes. Like, look at that. Just like what you were saying, that he was put on this pedestal, and all of a sudden he thinks he's better than everyone. So he had a lot of, he said, emotional pain, which led him to use... Vicodin and alcohol that helped take away this pain, helped him dissociate. And he ended up getting into, um, he was, he only lasted a few years in the league. He ended up um, looking up ways to kill himself in 2012. Um, He thought about cutting his wrists, asphyxiating himself in the garage. He actually stole some pain pills and actually got arrested. Unbelievable. um, And was released in 2014 after serving 32 months. Um, And now he's actually kind of turned his life around and created a foundation for people who can't afford substance abuse and mental health treatment. Um, it's called focused intensity. So he found his own path outside of sports, but it, like Armin said, whatever stressors he was facing within the realm of sports kind of aided and enabled him to develop this, yeah. this substance I, use. And I'd be curious disorder. to talk to Ryan just to find out, you know, how he got himself back up, you know, into a, to a, a good place. Because to start a foundation is an incredible thing. Yeah. You know, that, he must have a great story. I would love to hear more about his journey, you know, and, and you know, how Absolutely. he... Absolutely. It sounds like he kind of hit rock bottom, then yeah. found a way to turn that story mm-hmm. around and to make something good out of it. Yeah. And Armin and I both see read a story like this, and we think, like, where could have been points of kind of intervention, points of prevention that we someone in the mental health community or someone educated with regards to mental health could have stepped in and kind of prevented this. So he could yeah. have lived up to that, that athletic potential he had where he was, I think, third in the Heisman voting or fourth in the Heisman voting and was second in the NFL draft. Like all the potential in the world. All the potential in the world. To not only be a star NFL athlete, but also everyone knows who is a star NFL quarterback is going to yeah. transcend sports. Yeah. Just look at Tom Brady. <laughs> no, but no, I mean, and that's, that's just the thing. Um, I think that what makes sports psychiatry such an important tool for, for the, uh, the sports community is, is that it can, it can take potential and, and help that potential continue to grow and prosper despite mental health challenges, you know, to, to prevent these, uh, these careers from getting derailed, the careers of guys like Ryan Leaf. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen more recently with Johnny Menzel, oh, yeah. you know, He's and, you know, guys like that. Yeah. So just like substance abuse, depression, yeah. the rates of depression, 
Um, everyone's known someone who struggled with depression. I think it's like one in 10 people struggle with depression. Same rates in uh, athletes. That's Same right. exact rates. That's right. We already talked about the risk factors for depression, but those are there. We mentioned DeMar DeRozan, who was open about his struggle with depression. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just to be clear, I mean, depression is not just all in your head. You know, None of these mental health challenges are all in your head. Depression is, in fact, one of the most physically disabling conditions oh, yeah. there is. I mean, when folks have really severe depression and they're having a depressive episode, they don't want to get out of bed. You know, they're physically exhausted. They, they, yeah, they have no they appetite. Sleep, no appetite. No motivation. Yeah, no motivation. And they drive. don't even want to get take a shower. Exactly. Like no energy, can't concentrate. Yeah. You get these vegetative symptoms. Exactly. Like you're like a vegetable. You are right. Exactly. And in severe it's cases, a, you get catatonic. Great where analogy. You, you don't move at all. Yeah. So depression's huge. That's one of the main things we we treat with our SSRIs, our Prozac and our Zoloft. We'll save that for another episode. Um, switching over to anxiety, we already talked about that with Kevin Love. That's more than like one in five people struggle with yeah. anxiety. Very common. It's extremely common, just as common in sports. Underneath that umbrella of anxiety, we have eating disorders. Yep. That's huge in sports because there's a lot of sports out there that kind of engender an eating disorder. That's right. Gymnastics. Cross country. Cross country. Synchronized swimming. Wrestling, wrestling. For There's sure. so many different sports. We we have everyone knows Nancy Kerrigan. She's the one who is she the one that put put the, no. She's the one that got the, the hit victim. put out on her by Tanya yeah. Harding, supposedly, allegedly. But she said after that attack, she really felt out quote unquote really out of control quote unquote. I would avoid food because it was something I could do. I felt like I could control that and nothing else. Mm. I don't know why, but that seemed like an accomplishment, and that is very stereotypical prototypical of every eating disorder patient. Arm and I have worked at UCLA Ronald Reagan in the inpatient eating disorder unit. Those patients are there for an average of like six months, very intense treatment, because it is one of the hardest mental illnesses to treat. Mm -hmm. These individuals have such a fixed idea that is fueled by anxiety, mm -hmm. a, a lack of what they perceive as control. Right. And they find out that the only thing they are good at and that they control is their weight. So they lose and lose and lose weight. And the more they lose weight, the more they feel that their body is too big. Mm. So the more they lose weight. So that goes hand in hand with anxiety. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, this is goes, what they're good at. And, and it's interesting. So you, so what you're, yeah, what you're essentially saying is there is a lack of balance between how they feel and then what their, their kind of reaction is. So you're saying they feel like they don't have control. And therefore, there is this hyper-focus on having control and you know it's channeled that into this, this directed into controlling how yeah. they look right and th it just so happens the that they perceive themselves as different than what other people perceive them because everyone can see that these people are extremely underweight but wow. they perceive something different so that's what makes it super difficult to treat those types of and patients and that's alive and well within sports and ocd is kind of similar to that right yep yeah, OCD is huge. That's one of the ones that if you see a patient with severe OCD, they almost look psychotic. So right. I think we, we milked anxiety enough. Let's hop over to concussion, CTE. I think we're For on sure. that. Everyone has watched the NFL recently, has heard about CTE or about the concussion protocol. Oh, he's in the protocol. Oh, no. Like, he, <laughs> like some players are out of it within a day. Some players are on the in concussion protocol the whole season, it seems like. Yeah. Bet Troy Aikman wishes they had one back then. That probably could have saved him yeah. a little bit. But anyways, well, maybe yeah, his, his career would have probably lasted a bit longer. But he's done a great job, I think. He actually, a sports yeah, he do, does well. Fox. I mean, although Tony like Tony Romo recently come, came up oh, and yeah, stole yeah. everyone's thunder, you know. Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, but well, uh, it's, it's the, he's he's such a he's such a comedian. He's very funny. Um, I think I don't uh, think Romo is purposely being funny though. I, I, I know <laughs> that's a thing. That's yeah. a, I mean yeah. So uh, we're we should do a whole podcast on announcers and the psychology behind that. So concussion is essentially a process that happens in the brain that's induced by kind of a traumatic force. But the thing is, there's there's no real structural injury with a with a concussion. It's more of a functional disturbance. Yeah. So you kind of just functional ha- disturbance. Just to just to be clear, yeah. so it, it's not that there's no injury at all. It's that the injury is is not something that can be seen on imaging. Yeah. You know, there's not you won't see an internal bleeding or anything like that. Um, what you will see though, if you were to put the those that tissue under a microscope, uh, if you do like a brain biopsy, is that you would see trauma at the cellular level, yeah. um, destruction uh, of you know cellular tissues and, and different things and disrupted uh, things that, that ultimately correspond to, as Tori said, are functioning. Yeah, and that's why the concussion protocol can be so frustrating is because you evaluate whether someone's still suffering a concussion based on their symptoms, based right. on how they answer questions. So... And a lot, you know, a lot of athletes are probably um, feigning like they're still okay, you know, trying to cheat these tests to get it back on the field to show no weakness, you know. So that leads to people being at risk for a second concussion. You can actually die from what's called second impact syndrome. And actually kids are at higher risk to that because their brains aren't fully developed. But we won't get too in in depth on that. What's been in the news a lot is the CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Right. Um, And that can happen with multiple concussions throughout your career. But it also can happen from multiple subclinical concussions or micro concussions, ones yeah. that don't show up. Like right. you don't even well, have to necessarily have the symptoms. Yeah, of you a don't concussion. even know that you had had a, had that kind of injury because you just don't feel it necessarily. But um, there's still that kind of micro injury that you right. talked about on the, yeah. at the cellular level. Yeah. And there's really no number. Like we can't give you a number and say, well, after ten hits, you know, traumatic hits to the brain, you're going to develop it. Or after hundred, I think everyone's threshold is a little bit different. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, for for years now, for decades, we've seen these symptoms come up, and and it got to be such a big deal that a huge lawsuit was filed against the NFL. Oh yeah, that uh, movie and, that and came out. Movie came out with Will Smith, Doctor Bennett Omalu. He was the neuropathologist, also a forensic guy who who kind of pioneered that. And the NFL's reported that they're making all these strides, changing the helmets, changed a lot of the rules, targeting. You can get ejected now and a big flag. So a lot of football fans aren't happy about that. And there might be, a, now there's a lot more lower body. They injuries. may not be happy about it, but it is definitely the best thing. I think it's saving yeah. lives. Yeah, I think it's tough. But at the, yeah, and this is a debate for another podcast. But a lot of these players would are have been open about they're willing to sacrifice their later years for these five to 10 years of glory, fortune, fame to improve their families. And not That's only right. improve their families, but the future generations of their families. Yeah. And who's to say what's there's no right or wrong in this situation. But well, when you think maybe. A, yeah. Maybe, maybe. But but let's think about a situation where that, that thing goes all wrong. And that's like the situation Are you of talking about Aaron Hernandez. Yeah, exactly. We're on the same page here. So Oh man, where to start with him? Like, I listened to that podcast done by the Boston Globe. It's like a five part series that detailed essentially his whole life, starting back from his childhood. We were talking about that three hit hypothesis, but this is a guy who had a family history of uh, mental illness, substance abuse. um, Grew up in a family with a physically abusive father, uh, domestic violence in the family. See all the red flags. So he's getting all the hits right off the gate. So he was a, a disturbed kid through high school, but his football game was stellar. So he received all this attention. He, he found a way out. He grew up in New England area, went to Florida for college, 
ended up doing awesome there, dominating, essentially. There was actually a rumor, and they talked about this in the podcast, that he might have murdered someone in college. And that kind of got swept under the rug or whatever was going on, and he got drafted by the New England Patriots. So he goes back home, and they kind of detail that being in that environment it was a toxic environment for mm-hmm. him because a lot of his childhood friends were still there and he was gang yeah. affiliated. Um, so yeah. essentially, and he had a great seasons with the new England Patriots, the best franchise in sports at that time um, in football, at least. And yeah, everything right there, right, right alongside Gronkowski. Exactly. He's killing it and with Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, like he's fitting in perfectly. And all these off the field problems have been going on since day one and well, just keep it, getting swept under the rug. Exactly. You know, and let me tell you something. The, the, what, what makes the Aaron Hernandez story so powerful to me as a psychiatrist is because you're right. It got swept under the rug. Right. And the reason why is because and this is how, you know, CTE is definitely a form of mental illness because there are relapses and then remission. So. There were periods of time where he was totally normal, where he seemed normal, you know, and that's how a guy like that, and I think this is what kind of shocked people about the whole thing is like, how do people not know a guy like that who's murdering people, a guy like that who's robbing people, mm-hmm. is living this, has this how whole could, different life? How, right? how do he, people not know? How could he be like, his boss is Bill Belichick. Right. He's obviously practicing, putting in the work, becoming yeah. an elite football player. Exactly. It t- takes, takes a lot takes of effort. insane dedication and hard work to do that. Obviously, he had tons of physical skills. You have to be organized. The time to get to that yeah. level, like he's de- his functioning on the football field was never interrupted. Right. And this went on for years, but then he also had this other life and you know this other kind of side to him. But that other side to him wasn't so much like he's literally has like two personalities, or, you know, whatever. What happens is there are periods where people who, you know, have mental illness are symptomatic, you know, and then periods when, you know, they're not symptomatic. When they're not symptomatic, they're going to seem normal. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these guys, what they do is they, they use street drugs, recreational drugs, to sort of mask the symptoms. Street drugs, they basically are variations of real medicines. So real medicines, you know, they, they have a healthy trans- mm-hmm. transformation inside the body, Right, they're not going to cause addiction. Yeah, know? and we're going to be able to it's, prescribe it. It's in the like right doses. Adderall is amphetamine, exactly salts, but at a very controlled dose of like 10, 20 milligrams versus exactly. street methamphetamines. You're getting is at ten to hundred times that dose all in one. Yeah, so and that's that, going to and that's going to have a completely different effect mm-hmm. on the mind and on the body. And so, but what a lot of these guys do is they, they they're not going to doctors, you know, but they realize there's something wrong. They got to keep it together to make that money. Yeah. So they'll smoke weed, you know, if they have some anxiety or whatever, or they'll drink alcohol yeah. if they yeah. have depression. And then we you factor in well, maybe most likely he probably had a personality disorder. Yep. So a lot of this could have been what we were talking about before, egocentric. So yeah. he's kind of just acting along the same lines of how he wants to act, or it's not disrupting his functioning. That's right. So there's nothing wrong, really. You don't see yeah. it. Yeah. He doesn't re- recognize anything is truly so if, wrong if and you have to go to a doctor. Yeah. Because and if you're still getting the pay, team, you just si- he signed a fat contract. He signed a multi million dollar contract man, like a year before this happened. They took a huge gamble on this guy. If they thought that he wasn't right in the head, they, they, I doubt they would have spent that kind of money on. They wouldn't have. Or I mean, they, no they had the kind of the hubris or the gall to say like, all right, we know this is this kid is kind of there's some issues, but we can, at this point, we can help him or whatever he does on the football I field. You're right, man. That. I just have to believe that if they if they had any clue, this guy was committing crimes, like he was out there like murdering people. Yo, there's I, just no way. At the end of the day, Urban Meyer, Bill Belichick, all these guys along the way. 
I, w- I would like to have conversations with them to see if they, ha- I mean, they they declined interview for the podcast, obviously, that the Boston Globe did, but to see, like, someone had to know along these lines and just get, he played good at football. Yeah. So it got swept under the rug. And we don't want to chalk all of his behaviors up to CTE because obviously we talked about how he had all these other risk factors, but certainly this repeated head trauma had to absolutely factor into his, yeah. that he ended up hanging himself in jail after being charged with murder. Terrible story, man. So what, another what, one of those like those those stories that comes done. out and just shakes everything up. But one thing I think we actually absolutely have to say here is that you know just just as a disclaimer, mental illness does not make someone a criminal. No, and mental health symptoms are not going to drive someone to commit murder. People with mental illness are more prone to actually being victims of crimes exactly. than, than criminals. Much themselves. more likely to be victims of crime. Um, what happens is that you have a person with an underlying you know, criminal personality, right, uh, and a personality disorder, and they also develop as a result of, you know, stressors and, and, you know, trauma in their lives, mental illness, in this case, CTE. So it was CTE that he developed in addition to, you know, just, you know, obviously propensity yeah. for violence and, you know, and crime and so forth. For those of you who don't know, CTE can cause like so many different psychiatric symptoms, depression, suicidality, poor impulse control, irritability, aggressiveness, violent behaviors. So someone with repeated head injuries can become more aggressive, have more less aggressive. impulse control, be yeah. drawn to substances. And then on top of that, when you have a concussion, your alcohol tolerance goes down. That's right. So this is like a cycle of, and then you're just in, continuing to injure your brain That's further right. and further. And then it just gets worse and worse from there. So, so the moral of the story is you, you, this stuff, you know, is, is very important to, to, to identify it early mm-hmm. educate. and to have the right and to educate folks and, and to have the right people in place to you know, prevent the progression and to hopefully stabilize the disease or the illness or the symptoms and, you know, allow that person, enable that person to go out there and thrive and prosper yeah. and be their best. That's what we want to do. What, that's what sports psychiatry is all about. Man. That's what we're about. Hell yeah. So let's transition. we got a couple of topics left. Injury, recovery, retirement, end of a career. How do you, like players have to make this adjustment. We talked All these adjustments, yeah. We touched on it like the average lifespan of an NFL running back would be four or five years at most. You're retiring in your early 30s if you're lucky. Like, how do you make that adjustment? A lot of players, like NFL, there was a study with NFL players, 3,000 retired players uh, filled out this depression questionnaire called a PHQ-9. 15% said they had severe depression. That's higher than that kind of the general average of Mm -hmm. like 7 to 10%. That's right. And then 7% of those guys had dysfunction at home or or school or work or whatever their avenue they went in after that. So retirement's huge. Um, you're at more risk for, there was another study that showed that retired athletes are at higher risk of abusing opiates. And I think it said like 50% of them were getting opiates prescribed on the sidelines from the sideline psychiatrist or sideline pharmacist. Yeah. So then they're, they already had a bit of an addiction going into their retirement. So in in the ACL, you mentioned the ACL injuries earlier on. Everyone has a fantasy football team that went down the tubes because their star running back in an ACL injury. So there's a study from the World Journal of Orthopedics that revealed that players who sustained an ACL injury reported higher rates of depressive symptoms than the national average. And these symptoms were associated with worse post-op outcomes. So essentially, you have depression, then you're not going to heal as well from your ACL injury. Mm-hmm. So we got to screen these athletes when they go in to see the orthopedic surgeons. That's There's right. no other option. That's absolutely and right. That's absolutely. Depression That's has absolutely these right. physiological effects on your body that causes you not to be able to heal better. It increases your cortisol. So you're going to have increased stress. It also decreases bone turnover via what are called the interleukin 6 and 2 or whatever. Uh, Erin and Lucan 1, actually IL-1. 
Yeah, so these, de- are, these are these are little these are cells of the immune system. Yeah. So you de- like obviously when you have decreased bone turnover, you're not able to heal your tendons and your bones as quickly. Essentially, that's what it means. So depression is not only causing you to be not motivated to go follow through with your physical therapy, but it's also working inside your body to not allow you to heal your ACL as quickly. That's right. It's fascinating stuff. It man. is fascinating. It's fascinating. And Mind and body's connected. Absolutely, man. Totally connected. And you know what's interesting about these you know, adjustment related issues is, again, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with Deion Sanders, right? Because I think a lot of us out here, we believe that the key to happiness is lifestyle and money, right? And having that good life. And we, so we, (laughs) exactly, man. And we look at these athletes and no matter what stage of their careers, they may go down, whether it's the ACL injury, the career ending ACL injury in someone's prime, or whether it's, just, you know, even a great career. And then, you know, that, that goes to into the thirties and where the person retires, whatever the case may be. I I think we all get this sense that because of the fact they had that period where they were at the top, just that, that time in their life that they were higher than, you know, and and on a pinnacle higher than anyone else, that they should just be so appreciative of having that opportunity that how could they ever fall apart with a, a depression or an anxiety disorder? You know, you got to you got to even for you know the guy that was a big time athlete in high school, who uh, goes off to college and then comes back and doesn't make it to the pros. I mean, no one in the community is going to be like, "Oh man, yeah, like we feel sorry for you. Yeah. Like you didn't." <laughs> they're going to be like, "Dude, like you were you were you know got had all the chicks in high school and you know got invited to all the coolest parties and you I know, think you it, all this fame and everybody loved you. Like, dude, like, what's your problem? Everyone has that childhood friend that kind of revels in the glory days of high school football when maybe they were the star quarterback and um, on Friday nights after a big win, you you did have a lot of attention and, That's right. and, and you had your pick of the litter. And they're kind of stuck in that 10, 15 years later, still talking about those memories because in, in a lot of ways that, that was the, the, the time in their life where they thought they were peaking because they got this attention. Um, it's a whole nother podcast when you, you have to determine that your own satisfaction, your own happiness, your own contentness in life shouldn't come from external forces. It should come from within. Um, yeah, I don't want to digress too much, it, it but that, that's should. the theme yeah. of a lot of this. And Kind of trying to come from you want to go ahead and wrap this up, talk about what's on the horizon a little bit. Uh, yeah, no, we, I, yeah, I, we're definitely co- going to talk about that. I just wanted to your point though, man, I just want to say that you know, it's not about the fame and fortune. You know, Tori touched on this earlier. I just want to say again, it's, it's, it's an identity thing. You know, there's an identity crisis that comes with, you know, being a certain type of figure and then having to now reconcile being a different type of figure. And, you know, for, I think that for the general population, we don't necessarily experience identity crisis until later in life, so it's hard for us to identify with it. You know, we, that retirement age into our fifties and sixties, mm-hmm. when oh by the way, you know, depression incidence peaks, yeah. right? Uh, later in life, I mean, yeah, it's it's hard to connect with something like that happening for a guy in his twenties and thirties. Um, but that's that's one of the the, the unique aspects of, of being an athlete. Yeah. So, yeah. So on the horizon, what's up, man? Yeah. So talk to us. Stanford is crushing it right now. They opened up the first ever sports psychiatry clinic. 
uh, open to not only athletes from the university, but Olympic athletes as well. Um, they also have a student mental health fellowship where you can study and work there underneath uh, other Very sports nice. psychiatrists. Nebraska University hired a, their first ever sports psychiatrist recently to Very kind nice. of run their mental health sports department. Uh, the Dodgers back in the 90s actually hired the, uh, the first ever psychiatrist. So a lot of professional organizations have been taking steps in the right direction we mentioned the NFL about the concussion protocol and trying not to allow players to get back on the field to suffer from a second concussion to decrease the risk of CTE. But they've also said they've been making different movements with regards to overall mental health. Right. They yep. have what they claim to have a 24 hour confidential mental wellness and suicide prevention hotline for players and their families. Cool. Access to eight counseling sessions per year under their Cigna Health Insurance benefits. It's a step in the right direction. Yeah, and then they they hired a director of player wellness, Dr. Nayak Nilampanti. Um, Hopefully, to, we can get her on the show. Absolutely, that'd be great. So they're they're trying to fight this stigma. Armin and I aren't naive. We've talked with professional sports team psychiatrists before, and what they say they essentially talk about how their hands are tied a lot of times. They are expected to just do an evaluation, diagnose someone with ADHD and prescribe them yeah. what the team wants them to prescribe. Right. So they're not acting under with full autonomy. And ultimately, that's not going to benefit the athlete. It may benefit the team and the athletic competition, but it's not going to benefit the athlete overall. That's right. So there's, there's, uh, it's, it's going to be interesting if we, when we get deeper into this. I agree. But, and then also the NBA, like we said, they're probably the, on the forefront of things. They have their own website dedicated to mind health. They like to call it mind health instead of mental health because I they still think that there's a stigma with regards to saying mental health. Right. But yeah, every we're moving in the right direction. Armin and I are both members of the International Society of Sports Psychiatry. Uh, we decided to want to do this podcast. At, we talked to Dr. Dave Barron, one of the leaders in the field. He's out here at USC. That's right. He's doing a lot of interesting studies with regards to concussion. He's looking at high school athletes. Um, him and Dr. Claudia Reardon created the first ever sports psychiatry curriculum available to anyone in any mental health, any, any, any kind of clinician in, in, that's interested in the field to learn a little bit more about sports psychiatry. So yeah, they, they wrote a book, so, a textbook, right? Oh, yeah. We got the textbooks. There's, there's right. more and more textbooks coming out right now. And hey, guess what? There's a podcast. It's called the Sports Psych MDs Sports Podcast. Sports Psych MDs, Did y'all. we even talk about the name of it? Sports Psych MDs. That's, that's who we are. That's, that's Armin who, that's and I. That's us. That's um, us, baby. And we're here. Dr. Armin Philippos. And we're ready. Captain Armin Philippos. <laughs> All of my many titles. Yeah. Hell yeah. So, but no, for sure, man. I'm so excited. So excited to get this off the ground. We are coming to you live, y'all, from sunny Los Angeles. Here we go. Here we go. Let's do Sports it. Sports psychiatry. Oh, all right, dude. So let's um, end the stigma. That's right. Let's continue the conversation. 